Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am your host, Anthony Caldellis. All of you listening right now are probably aware that our field uses the terms ecumenical and universal often in relation to Byzantium. But what do they really mean? These terms are never defined precisely enough to make them analytically useful. They convey some vague approbation of Byzantine culture in terms that are supposed to resonate with modern audiences. And this raises another problem. It is, how should I put it, perhaps too self-satisfied on our part to use these terms when our field is made up largely of people from Orthodox or European countries and their white colonies. And I say this as someone who comes from both. Byzantine conferences are so incredibly white, I sometimes look out on the rows of white faces, and this this is what we call universal? The survival of our field may well depend on reaching out to constituencies beyond this demographic, as the pretext of austerity is decimating our own institutions, economic development in the rest of the world is opening up opportunities for the study of Byzantium elsewhere. I hope in this podcast to include conversations with colleagues who are there now or come from there, not only to promote strategic objectives investing in the long-term future of our field, but also for the sheer fun of it, to discover possibly other perspectives. Our guest today is my friend Paroma Chatterjee, a brilliant art historian at the University of Michigan. She obtained her BA in French literature from Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi, India, a second BA in art history from Cambridge University in England, and her PhD in art history from the University of Chicago in 2007. She is an incredibly fun person to talk to, as you will hear in the following conversation, which I set up in part in order to have the opportunity to chat with her again. But I must make one thing clear from the start as we have this conversation. Paroma is an expert on Byzantine and medieval art history. She does not necessarily speak for any country or cultural tradition or group of people. She has her own views about things, as you will soon see, and I hope to speak to her again soon about her next book. But because our field does not have any existing framework for us to discuss what it might mean to come to Byzantium from a very different cultural background, I thought that this podcast might provide a forum to have such conversations. One by one, these conversations might point toward a more universal perspective. Here's my conversation with Paroma Chatterjee. Hello, Paroma, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I think it's vitally important for the field of Byzantine studies to uh, draw in more people from more diverse cultural backgrounds, not just the usual, you know, Orthodox countries and Western, you know, white Western scholars. Um, but in order to do that, I think we first need to be able to imagine it, like to have some sort of image of how what that looks like and, and how it might happen. Um, and so I thought it would be great to hear from you and just to ask you just to, you know, dive right into it and, and, and tell us. So how did you come to be a, a Byzantinist? I imagine it's not every girl's dream growing up in India. <laughs> No, it absolutely isn't. It certainly wasn't mine. And um, as I'd mentioned to you once before, it was completely by accident. And that is what is both wonderful and 
actually a little a little scary because it was it's so contingent i didn't plan to be a byzantinist i was actually more interested much more interested in venice um early modern venice um late medieval early modern venice who isn't interested in italy especially if you're an art historian um and it just so happened that byzantium came into my radar through venice but i i still wasn't planning to um do my graduate work on Byzantium, it just so happened that it was Byzantinists who picked up my application and who suggested that I could come and maybe work on cross-cultural something. And that is how I made my way into Byzantium. It was completely sort of, uh, as I said, contingent. And, and here I am. So this didn't happen in India, right? Or, or did this happen in the transition between, from India to the U.S.? It happened, um, it actually, it happened in the transition uh, between England and the US. It didn't happen in India at all. I had absolutely no idea that such an empire existed. And I'm, I'm willing to wager that, I mean, certainly none, none of my classmates uh, from my time in high school knew about this. Um, we did study other parts of Europe. Um, but, I mean, Byzantium was just not on our radar. Ancient Rome, of course, was. <laughs> Greece was not Byzantium. Um, this this was purely in England that, you know, uh, studying Venice, of course, we learn about Byzantium. And uh, that's how it happened. Otherwise, no. So there's no representation of Byzantium in Indian academic circles or it's just absent from the curriculum or, or is it represented anywhere? Um, I I can only speak about um, high school, about, you know, elementary, middle and high school. I don't know about um, uh, undergraduate or graduate studies in India, whether they actually do. But I'd be very surprised. I, I would be very surprised if they had. Uh, uh, I mean, there isn't a single Byzantinist in India, located in India, working in India. So I, I don't imagine it's there. It's not there in high school history textbooks, even for those who choose to study history, uh, you know, what... I suppose, would be the equivalent of uh, advanced uh, AP history in, in the U.S. It, it's just not there. It's it's not. Right. So, hard. but you said that Greece and Rome are, are present? Oh, yes. I mean, we certainly are taught something about ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, the focus is on ancient medieval and modern India because uh, India, of course, has a very rich and, uh, you know, ancient history. Sure. So that's what we focus on. But we we certainly learn about, you know, we certainly learned about uh, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. We learn a little bit about medieval Europe, not a whole lot. Maybe Charlemagne, you know, doing a couple of things here and there. Nothing about Byzantium. The Eastern Roman Empire is not there at all. And uh, yeah, and we learn about early modern Europe, the Renaissance. We learned about the French Revolution. A <laughs> uh, little bit about, you know, the American Revolutionary Wars, but... Nothing about Byzantium. <laughs> right. So what had made Venice so attractive? Um, well, I think for speaking as someone from India, going to England, um, I mean, it, it, it was the Renaissance, the, especially for, for someone who was going to study art history. It, it, the Renaissance is was, in our discipline, one of the strongest um uh, sort of disciplinary fields, but also, of course, a period that is just was is considered and certainly is very rich in art. So it's Rome 
And Venice was lagging behind disciplinarily, but it, it really made a big entry around the time that I was uh, that I went to do uh, my studies. And um, yeah, that's that's what made it really attractive. So Rome, it- Venice would Rome, Venice, Florence are the, the main attractions, I think, for a lot of people looking at the Renaissance. And, and so the Renaissance is understood as a prestige field in India. Oh, in that yeah, sense. yeah. OK. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it's also known. Every, I mean, most educated Indians know about this this supposed efflorescence, which is the Renaissance, and it, it it makes sense to them. You know, of course, of course, you would study Italy, and if, if you're doing that, of course, you would study Italy or France. Why would you study this weird thing, you know, called Byzantium that we've never heard of? That's right. I mean, that's interesting because <laughs> so my understanding of the development of Byzantine art history in Europe is that it it developed yeah. you know, in the late 19th and 20th centuries in, in part right. as a kind of reaction to the tyranny right. of the Renaissance ideal and right. Renaissance right. forms. Right. Right. But I imagine right. that in India, there would be no reason to have that kind of alternative. There are probably a lot of local alternatives that can play that role. Right. Absolutely. But we should also remember that art history as a discipline was, it was non-existent when I was studying uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, uh, I mean, when I, when I was studying in India um, in school, it was not there at all. And even today, that field is extremely, it's very rare. We have art historians in India, but this is not a field people, one, know about and two, even want to get into. So we are not. So we are talking about two things. We are talking one about Byzantium, which is even even today pretty unknown. It's it's just not you know considered. And two, the field of art history. It's just not. I see. It's just not there. I mean, most people had no clue what I was, what I was going to do when I said I'm going to go and study this thing called art history. I myself didn't quite know what I was getting into when I went to England uh, to study it. That's where I first studied art history in England, not in India. Right. So so coming with the background that you had and, yeah. you know, in this trajectory where you're gradually approaching yeah. Byzantium via the Renaissance, yeah. via Venice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and now that you've established yourself as a not only Byzantine, but also Western art historian, I mean, you, yeah. you do both. We can talk about that later. Um, yeah. Is there, in the, from this perspective, do, do you see any kind of major blind spots in the field of Byzantine studies um, that the you know the rest of us can't see? Like, you know, would you wear a T-shirt that says "I see X everywhere" and nobody else is seeing this, right? right? <laughs> yeah. There, well, possibly. Um, I think. Um, I think this is where it intersects with my training also at the University of Chicago, which is a little bit of a, what should, not an outlier, but I would say we we treat art history, we treated it a little differently from, from what our contemporaries were doing in some of the other schools, let's say. And in some ways, we were trained to look out for blind spots. So it's not just as an Indian, but it was also the training at Chicago. So I I see a lot of these things intersecting here, right? Byzantium art history, art history in Chicago. Um, And certainly one major blind spot. uh, I don't know whether actually it should be called a blind spot. 
rather it's it's it, it is possibly the 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 non-blind spot the one thing is of course this um huge this 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 overwhelming emphasis on uh orthodoxy on christianity on on this, this insistence on seeing this you know thousand year empire as being almost nothing but orthodox and surely that i mean sure sure officially they may be orthodox whatever but but it's clear that's not the only narrative that we have and the material culture actually tells you that's not the only thing that there is clearly so that is one very striking thing i think and and i i don't think it's just for me as an indian i think it would be for a lot of art historians who are not dealing with byzantium i think people in other subfields would also have this question about well do you have nothing but just religious art right sure see in in if you grow up in certainly in greece but probably in most western countries before you even get to the academic study of these uh of this uh you know culture you've already internalized this distinction between pagan and christian um and you know it can be political it can be very personal and people get very passionate about this it's it it, some people can find it very threatening, um, yeah. especially if, yeah. you know, issues of identity are tied up with this medieval oh, yeah. empire. And that that dichotomy, um, I think, is is sort of very uh, politicized uh, in, in the field yeah. and is, um, you know, sort of a rigid paradigm sometimes of seeing things yeah. either either in one way or the other. Yeah. And that Byzantium is this yeah. post-pagan um, very Christian, and yeah. so we have to police yeah. that sort of distinction. Um, yeah. But I imagine that you never had a stake, right, in this distinction, right? It was just not part of a either national narrative or religious background no. or anything, right? No, no. It, 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 you're absolutely right. I don't really have that sort of stake in it at all in any way. Um but it's it's also it's also tied up with this whole thing, uh, which I mean, uh, which you have tackled head on, about this this idea of Byzantium being this one autocratic, you know, empire where the emperor has absolute power, which 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 I mean, you've kind of overturned with the the Byzantine Republic, you know. Uh, um, I think these are the deeply entrenched narratives that we've sort of gone along with. And art historians have gone along with some of the historical narratives because, yeah, sure, we, we, we'll follow what the historians say and we'll see how our materials fall into those particular narratives uh, already established by historians. And I think that's, that's a bit of a problem. They, they don't always have to coincide. They don't always have to justify each other. You can actually have a historic, one kind of narrative historically, and you and the material culture can be doing something that's of, that reflects it, but in a very different way, in in many different ways. Um, so yeah, so so that's uh, so yeah. The whole Christian thing is one very you know common view that we have, and we still have it everywhere. Uh, yeah, and, and this also affects the way um, you, we read images, right? And um, I, yeah. I, I think that you're, you're working on a question related to this now, um, yeah. which is that, in, especially in the field of art history, this Christian, this this hegemonic sort of narrative 
is applied yeah. very much to icons or is expressed through icons. And like that is yeah. the religious art. Um, whereas, in fact, if you were to visit any Byzantine city, you would probably see a lot more kinds of art than just Christian icons. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the other, the other big, big blind spot that uh, I think now Byzantinists have sort of moved away from uh, Byzantine art historians, uh, but which was also very entrenched before. So one is, of course, the, the, the Christian pagan thing. But the other thing is icons and relics. So it's sort of, uh, even now, it, just just two weeks ago, one of our own graduate students here in art history, a medievalist, said to me, yeah, but of course, Byzantium is all about icons and the West is all about relics. But no, I mean, Constantinople had the greatest cache of relics which, you know, the Crusaders took away. Uh, funnily enough, I mean, according to whatever written accounts we have, they were, I mean, it seems they were much more interested in preserving the relics than they were in, in preserving icons. They, they smashed icons. They didn't, I mean, sure, they liked some of them, but it was really the relics that they, that they wanted to keep. So it's, these are, you know, this is what the idea of, Byzantine art is to the vast majority, uh, to specialists even within the field, Western or or Eastern. Right. Yeah. I sometimes yeah. get the impression that most icons, now you know, not the ones with a name and a story, but yeah, most icons were utilitarian objects. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. I mean, they facilitated yeah. worship, but yeah. they had no yeah. inherent value. They could be just destroyed or painted over or you yes, know, whatever. absolutely. Where, whereas yeah. the relics. Yeah. had, you know, identities, and those made them valuable, uh, yeah. and connections. And I, I get the strange sense that the ancient statues yeah. fall into the same category, right? Like they have, they're named artists <laughs> and named works, and they have a pedigree. Exactly. And... <laughs> That's my book. That's oh. actually what I say in my book. It's relics, relics and statues were visible. I mean, well, the statues were certainly visible in Constantinople. And they exactly, they had the sort of pedigree, which actually a lot of icons did not develop till very late. So, uh, right. icons meaning the, the you yeah, know, yeah. Yeah, the religious icons. So, yes, you, uh, yes, you basically, say, this is my book. Nobody needs to read it anymore. We will definitely talk about your book um, when it comes out. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, I, I obviously I haven't read any okay. of it, but. I, I, I sometimes think, you know, we talk about value and, you know, as a now that I'm an administrator, <laughs> right, I think, OK, well, let's let's put a value on these things. So if you were like in Byzantium, if you were going to have an auction, um, just like you have auctions of <laughs> artworks today or any anything, yeah, yeah. right, the yeah. items with the identity, the history, the pedigree, yeah. the media mentions right? Yeah. Those are more valuable. Yeah. And those in Byzantium are ancient statues and relics. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's wonderful. Can I, can I put this in my book? Can yeah, I just yeah, yeah. Uh, say do this a Byzantine, is a quote from the, the yeah, Byzantine auction? Or... <laughs> I've already sent it off. I should, I should just quickly write and say, can you send this on to the reviewers? This is what he said. <laughs> yeah, because today, if you want to... I agree. Yeah, if you want to sell an, an object and increase its value, yeah. you find some academic to write its history so that it, it increases in value. Yeah. Like the, the, you know. yeah. Anyway, we know how that, yeah. how that works. So yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm still always intrigued by the question of, of polytheism and especially its appearance in urban societies. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's bothered me over the years, so, I mean, back when I was studying classics and I read a lot about ancient religion, um, is how classicists would not ever take up you know, contemporary paradigms of living polytheistic societies mm-hmm. or, or non-monotheistic, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. anthropologists did, but not classicists. Uh-huh. And I thought it was very strange, uh, right? Especially when you have Indian, the British were in India, they, yeah. their, their classicists yeah. were intimately aware of, you know, yeah. how religion yeah. functioned. And yet the classical world was just kept insulated, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, one exception, ha- have you um, read Ed Watts's um, book? It's The Final Pagan Generation. And no. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think... I'll keep it in mind. Yeah, I so the first it. chapter, he tries to reconstruct what the experience of living in a city with all of these gods would be like. And I think I think his wife is Indian, and so he had traveled there. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. he just uses India as a kind of like here here's what you might experience. I mean, obviously they're not not the same thing, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I always I was that's that that said a lot to me about classical scholarship and you know how colonial narratives mm-hmm. and hierarchies mm-hmm. were you know kept out yeah. models that would have otherwise been very useful. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. you don't see anything like that in Byzantine yeah. studies though. Like, are there things that Byzantinists can learn from India? I mean, just to turn it around. Um, yes, I mean, um, that's a that's a really interesting question. What can they learn from India? I think, I mean, just this idea of a, of a plurality to a certain um, extent. I think, I think India provides that that sort of paradigm. I would say to a certain extent. Um, but also just the whole concept of an idol. I'm sure, I mean, I mean, our gods would be referred to as idols, right? They would be idols. And in fact, we call them idols in our, our, uh, our terminology for them as idols. But I think that is because we have adopted right. the British. Yes, of course. Um, terminology, you know, a, a, a very Protestant, but we actually use the word idol in a reverent way, not in the way that the British would have wanted us to use it. Which oh, that's is, interesting. Oh, these are just, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, when we say, oh, the idol has appeared, we are saying it definitely with a lot of veneration. We are not, say, we are not saying this is a false icon. This is a false image. We are not saying that. But I think just uh, observing the sort of rituals that we have and things like that, I think it, it, it would be very useful to Byzantinists. And I think just thinking about the, the use of images in, uh, in, a, in an urban environment publicly, how we use images, I mean, some of it, it's, it's, it's a lot like, I mean, it's a lot, lot like stories about the Hodigitria or the Black Hair Nitisa. I mean, there's certainly parallels. I'm sure, I'm, but I'm sure you'd find those anywhere, not just in India. But I'm trying to think of something specifically about India that might help. Well, I was um, struck by your. I'd have to use, think about that. I, I was struck by the, your use of the term um, uh, plurality, um, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if mm-hmm. that might be a useful model to get out of um, maybe some of the dead ends um, that Byzantinists sometimes get themselves into. And so correct me if, <laughs> if this is completely off target, but 
mm-hmm. um, I have the impression that Hinduism is a, um, how to put this, a rather kind of disorganized religious field, right? Like it's not strictly hierarchical <laughs> right. where everything has a defined place um, and that there are like different kinds of rules operating in different parts of the system yeah. that yes. are not always interconnected. And yeah, yeah so... I, I think I may have gotten this from, I don't know, Wendy Doniger or some, some I, I don't remember now. But mm-hmm. um, this strikes me that in Byzantine studies, so we have all of these different religious sites, right? Like we have the church and we have icons and relics and holy men yeah. and all of these yeah. other, and, and you know, bishops and the emperor. Yeah. And Byzantinists are always like jumping to systematize, like to yes. put them all yeah. into some kind of, ranking yes yes right? <laughs> that's another we we have yes we believe it's an it was an intensely hierarchical society and we want to put higher impose our yeah read those as hierarchies put all our material i too have certainly been guilty of doing it but you're absolutely right it's it's something that we all do we just want them to be slotted into yeah, to, to be slotted and also they're yeah, seen yeah, as being in yeah. tension, right? Like yeah, that yeah. holy men and bishops yeah. are competing yes. sites of religious authority and icons yeah, are yeah, yeah. shoving out yes. bishops and relics. Are co- yeah. But like, yeah, can yeah, all yeah. of these things just be operating in just different parts yeah. of life, you know? I, that's a really good point. I, I think that's a really great point, actually. You're right. It's... it's um, it's something that that too is, I think, deeply entrenched. This idea of everybody wanting to be first, and so everything is in in hierarchical tension. Does the icon do icons displace emperors? Was that why there was even iconoclasm? As you know, I mean, this whole thing that uh, exactly, this one yes. strand, which yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, about Hinduism, I'm I'm not a scholar of of Hinduism, but I I, I am a Hindu. Uh, uh, semi-practicing Hindu, uh, one could say. I while we were talking, I actually thought of one example, not from my any scholarly study of Hinduism, but from my lived experience in India that I think could have some insights for Byzantinists. So um, I, I, I'm sure you know that there's a very there's a history of uh, very strained relations between Hindus and Muslims in India. Right. And there's, you know, there's lot frequent riots. And even now, it's something that is used also politically to for votes to polarize sure. these groups. Um, so those are seen as very strong. In certain cases, those are strong, entrenched identities, Hindu, Muslim, and now the twain can meet. And that's fine. Now, I have known, uh, I go back to India every single year. I, it, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still very Indian. Um, I have known a lot of very, uh, very devout Muslims. But one thing that has that struck me as I, uh, you know, in my as I was growing older was these staunch devout Muslims who would read the Quran, you know, they would go for Friday prayers and so on. Whenever they would buy a car, a new car, they would actually break a coconut over the car, that is completely Hindu. There's nowhere in Islam will you find this breaking of coconut <laughs> and, you know, putting a garland around the car. Uh, it's completely Hindu. And it was, it's, it's a thing that all, uh, we have a lot of people who drive car, drivers, they will do it. And a, lo- a lot of our Muslim drivers, I mean, they will, they will refuse to actually get in the car to drive it 
until they've the coconut has been broken and the garland been placed and some sanskrit chants have yes. been chanted over it sanskrit not quranic chants sanskrit chants and and but they are still they, they would they would balk to be called semi hindus this is they, they would say absolutely not we are we are absolutely we are 150% muslim <laughs> but this is just natural to them to have this ritual done and i i think that's normal i think you could have an absolutely you could have someone in the city of constantinople who considers himself to be 150% orthodox but who still would possibly uh, feel something in front of uh, that statue of heracles or of uh, athena promachos yeah, i'm not or, saying feel or, something religious but something yeah. some kind of yeah or 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 ask a statue <laughs> of aphrodite for help in a in a romantic yeah. matter or absolutely yeah. Absolutely. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that's that's kind of what I was trying to do with, with my latest research, uh, because I, I don't think those are incompatible. You can believe yourself to be a, a, a very staunchly devout Muslim or Christian and still actually go to, I don't know, Goddess Kali and say, hey, just <laughs> protect me a little bit in so-and-so situation or, yeah, Aphrodite. I, that, I don't think you know that that's wonderful but, that you're doing that um yeah because yeah. you know what we really lack especially in middle byzantium because for late antiquity there's been some work in this direction uh you know yeah. especially yeah. think of you know john chrysostom yeah. telling his congregation not to go do those jewish things that, that they were all yeah. <laughs> um but in, in middle byzantium right. too which we consider to be like entirely orthodox you know, we see everything in terms through theological lens. So anybody doing yeah. something like that would be considered a semi-pagan or or, yeah. or something. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You, you yeah. know, I, I have a similar experience. Um, I remember when I was quite young, and we were laying down the foundations of our house in Athens. You know, the the first concrete, you know, to mm -hmm. be poured. This was yeah. a long time ago, and an Orthodox priest came to bless the foundations. And mm -hmm. meanwhile. <laughs> Yeah, I'm mean, now as a child, I, w I wasn't exactly following all this, but there was this other guy who showed up and was kind of walking around the perimeter. And at some point, he pulled out a rooster, decapitated it, <laughs> oh decapitated God. it, and walked around dripping the blood into the you know the trench. There you go. And yeah. the priest didn't skip a beat. <laughs> like this was entirely normal. See, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I asked my mother, like, what's that guy doing over there? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think these, but that gets us to like a, a kind of anthropology of yeah. orthodoxy yeah. that is pluralist. Yeah. Yes. Right. And yeah. since yeah. we see orthodoxy yeah. through theology and the bishops, it's kind of, it's, it's yeah. hard to do. Uh, like, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'll admit, like, it, it's hard for me to do too. Like, you, especially if you, you know, intellectualize all of these issues and you turn them into belief systems, that it's, it's difficult to... <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, so one of the other things I admire about your work um, is that you, you, you work both on Byzantium and on the medieval West. I mean, I remember your book had, what was it, what, about half of it or so, right, was on, or maybe mm -hmm. a third was on Western material. 
Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And yeah. this is fairly rare, um, right? Like in art history to, to, to do those things in tandem, like together through the same thematic lens. Um, do, do you see that difference between Byzantine and Western medieval as less important than, you know, most Byzantinists do? Mm, I, I think, I mean, they're certainly different in, in, in many ways. I mean, West, I mean, you know, in, in the medieval West, you have all these many disparate sort of kingdoms, many different uh, disparate sort of, and, and certainly the material culture shows a certain kind of uh, disparate, you know, uh, it, it looks different. I mean, medieval Fr- French stuff looks different from medieval Italy, um, although even though they want to subsume everything in an international style, but it's, it's, it, it looks different. Um, and that's where we come to this thing about Byzantium, the perception that everything looks uniform much or at least looks relatively uniform over a much longer period of time. Which, to be honest, it it does kind of look relatively uniform compared to the West. So I think there is a real difference, which is very productive. But there are certain things where, I mean, there are certain issues that they are all thinking about around the same time. I mean, the West is as concerned about idolatry or as much or as little concerned about idolatry as as the East. Um, uh, Both sides are concerned about, you know, stuff to do with the Eucharist, how to depict the Eucharist, you know, things like that. So it's it's a fruitful conversation. And there are moments where I think there are many more similarities than than differences. And that's also interesting. But those are moments. And also, those are specific nodes. Like, we know that the Franciscans, and that was a part of my book, that the Franciscans were very interested in Byzantium. But some other parts of Europe, I don't think, were that interested. I mean, they knew there's this great empire and they are the Romans. They are still the Romans. But I don't know that they were that interested. But some parts, some other parts had a much more intense interest, um, I think, than others. So um, I wouldn't say I'm the only one. I think, uh, in fact, over the last decade and more, more and more people have started doing this intercultural work um and very practically speaking if you if you see the job market there used to be a time when i was just starting out you'd barely want a byzantinist everybody wanted a western medievalist preferably someone who does gothic gothic art and architecture gothic great cathedrals the beautiful you know oh yeah even now i mean it's a big thing but gradually i think people have recognized that the academy has recognized that they're excellent uh, Byzantinists in art history, and more and more you see, you see departments wanting people who do some sort of cross-cultural. It's still, I mean, I, I think it's still uh, rare to find. I mean, we do certainly have them, but it's rare to find people who want someone who just does Byzantium. Right. But they are very open to having someone who does. Um, who does east-west yeah yeah and and hiring priorities don't often line up with people um you know scholars research necessarily um yeah and yeah that's why i i think it's important uh, or a very interesting development that we're getting more and more um scholarship that sort of takes in both sides of of that divide at least Uh, because in a certain sense that that's one kind of solution to this tension between these two fields, um, you know, are we having a dialogue? Whose terms are we having it on? 
But yeah. if if we have more, um, you know, uh, scholarship that is, you know, just to use a metaphor, like the the product of a mixed marriage, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, that can just do yeah. both naturally. Then yeah. then this might be a, a just yeah. a different model that yeah. will emerge on its yeah. own. Yeah, we. I think we also need in in Byzantine art history. I think we also need connections within the empire. I mean, this was a vast empire, and it had so many connections and so many parts. But we are so sort of uh, uh, partly. It's also uh, you know our own limits. We can't. Uh, you can't expect someone to do everything. But uh, I've noticed that it's. Usually people who are doing Greece, the Greek part, you know, who are doing Thessaloniki, Athens, um, they're usually Greek speaking <laughs> and they are, a lot of them are positioned in Greece or they are Greeks, you know, by descent. Uh, then you have uh, some people doing Constantinople. A lot of those are actually um, uh, sort of North American scholars, uh, including me. I, I feel comfortable with Constantinople. You have... Very few people working on Sinai, which is its own thing. And Sinai comes with its own thing. It's seen as just, of course, it is a monastery. It is orthodox, but it has its own set of uh, problems. So um, it would be nice to have a fruitful dialogue between us as well. And not just in a BSc panel where maybe you have four papers, uh, four panelists talking, but, but really to have some kind of maybe workshop where we sit down and say, let's talk about say, Constantinople and Athens. And maybe, I, I don't know, may, maybe something in Serbia or Rus, you know, in, in, in around the same time. Something like that. It, it would be really great, I think, to do something like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Over maybe maybe a two or three days where we just think about what's going on in concert, in dialogue within ourselves. Yeah, yeah I, I imagine that yeah, some, some of those kinds of conversations are taking place. Um, especially, you know, by scholars who are closer to those locations. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll 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 try to get some of those discussions on the on the podcast too, if I can think of a format. Um, so, mm -hmm. a different question. Is, so, is there anything that Byzantine studies as a field can do to become just more open to people of a sort of non-Orthodox, non-Western European background? Can oh, you think of anything? Because I would very much like that to happen. Um. Well. Uh, one is, I think, simply by uh, maybe opening up some of our boundaries. So, for instance, maybe looking at maybe having uh, Islamicists enter the conversation, you know, or the whole stuff, you know, the, the interactions with the Abbasid court or other Islamists. I think that would, one, open it up a lot. I mean, Islamic is a, at least in art history, it's a field that is has has been growing over the last few years and it's it, you know there's there's significant amount of scholarship that's being done and they certainly look at uh, i mean some of them look at our our scholarship they look at byzantium i they kind of see it as a natural um ally in some ways and i don't think we've exploited that at all at all um western medievalists yeah we can do something but i think um also just asia just thinking you know um of I don't know, connections with China. When I was in Dumbarton Oaks more than 10 years ago, there was one Chinese scholar who was doing, uh, who was working on Byzantium, Ji Chiang Cheng. And he was in Tianjin University. And of course, he also, he told me he, his plan was not to study Byzantium. <laughs> he was forced to by orders from above. He yes. wanted to study history. 
<laughs> but he was forced to by orders from above in China. They, they, apparently, some government officials decided that this university needs to have at least two people who are working on this Eastern Roman stuff. And he happened, I guess maybe they drew straws and he was one of them. Um, but if you have, that means you have at least some people in China working on Byzantium. Well, let's see what are there Byzantinists in China? Let's let's look at those connections. Um, I think this this is something really that Byzantinists should be doing, that the BSANA presidents and so, I mean, I think we are very inward looking. We are focused on, I actually don't know what the issues are that we are focused on. Uh, it's my fault. I haven't gone for any of those meetings. I haven't, but we need to think wider, much wider if we, if we want to increase our numbers. One thing I'll just add, um, Byzantium is on the radar in India for a for a group of people who we might not intuitively think of, but it's artists. There are actually very big um, Indian contemporary, but also modern artists, so some of them who are already dead uh, and who are extremely well known in the international market. You know, their works um, auctioned to bring up another theme that you brought up before. The works are auctioned um, for millions. I know that they have looked, I mean, they have looked at Byzantine art and some of them have tried to use motifs. They've been inspired by it, just like Picasso was inspired by African art or whatever. So that is actually one arena where Byzantium was very much on the radar. But the interesting thing is, I have no idea where they encountered these. Some of them went abroad and they saw. They, right. they, went, they went to Europe and they saw it. But that is actually one place where India has Byzantium on the radar in That's terms of art. That's yeah. and, 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 uh, and this very good point about China. In, in fact, I do know that, yeah, there is a, there, there's a growing uh, uh, sort of contingent of Chinese Byzantinists. And I, yes. will, I will think more about how to get in touch with them and, and get them on the podcast too. Um, that, yeah, or maybe if, if they, if, if say BSANA or whatever invites, it just has a panel on Byzantine studies in China. Something like that, that would make us more aware. Well, Japan, Japan is another place where they apparently have a very strong tradition. Apparently, Alexander Kajdan was worshipped as a god or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and we just don't know about this. How do I know about this? Because I had a, a, a colleague who was Japanese. I don't know if you know Hisa Kusabu. He's a, no. He was a historian at the University of Chicago, trained by Walter Kagi. And he used to tell us that, oh, yes, Kajdan is this big person. So clearly there is a, some kind of tradition also in Japan. Do we know about it sitting in North America? No, <laughs> we, we don't know these things. But I think you can't ignore this huge part of the world, which is Asia, and where we should create some interest. That and is that's some... excellent point. Yeah, no, I will I will definitely make an effort to to reach out um and bring especially if we can find a a kind of cargo cult where Kajdan is worshiped <laughs> as a god. <laughs> that would be that would be worth it. <laughs> but no, you're right. No, and I'll I'll bring it up at the at the at the Byzantine Studies Conference too. Um can you give us a, just a sneak peek about of your next book? I mean, we you meant we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but did you just want to say what it's about? Because I'll definitely have you on again when it comes out. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, as as we said, as as you already guessed, you know, the, the in one in one sentence, my new 
book says, let's look at all those pre and non-Christian statues that stood in Constantinople and realize that they were actually uh, possibly more visible, more numerous, and sometimes in certain cases, perhaps more important than the religious stuff the icons of Christ and the Theotokos and the saints. Right. In, in a nutshell, that's what the book yeah, is. No, yeah, I, so, there, I, yeah, there's yeah. definitely a lot to explore there. Um, it's just thinking about what one would see in the street walking to Hagia Sophia, right? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so. Yeah. Okay, so a closing question that I ask of all of my guests. Uh, can you recommend two books uh, that are not necessarily about Byzantium, but that you would recommend to our listeners as, uh, as just good to think with? Mm, good to think with. Um, well, there's this one great, uh, it's a classic uh, his book. It's not Byzantium, but I think we. I'm, I'm rereading it after a couple of decades, and it's as fresh and as beautifully written as ever. It's called Leonardo's Incessant Last Supper. <laughs> So it's about the Last Supper of Leonardo da Vinci by Leo uh, Steinberg. And it's a classic. It's an art history classic. It's really good. And um, um, actually, the other thing that I would recommend is uh, it's it's quite, um, uh, what should I say? It's, this, it's an essay on mathematics, <laughs> which is reconsidering the use of the equal to sign. So there's been this whole thing recently by this huge mathematician, very young mathematician from Harvard, where he's saying it's about equivalency, it's not equal. But I think why it would be really interesting to Byzantinists or, or historians or art historians is because he's saying that when we say one plus one is equal to two, uh, we are just looking at one kind of relation between one, one, and two on the other side of the equal to sign. But there are many other kinds of relations. So for instance, if you have one bead, a red, one red bead and one green bead, would that be one, would it equal one red bead and one green bead together? As in two, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. What I mean, would the relations be? Yeah, I mean, what what is uh, yeah. what is being related? Right? So it's not just about quantity. Exactly. Yeah, it's not just about quantity, sets of numbers, it's about also the different kinds of relations. And to me, that's very, that's very much what we do, I think. I think that's what the humanities and the social sciences do, thinking about different kinds of relations, right? Uh, so is Byzantium equal to orthodoxy? Or is it equivalent to orthodoxy? Is there a difference? And what kind of relations would does orthodoxy equal only praying, uh, performing proskinesis in front of an icon of Christ? Or can it actually include someone performing proskinesis and also stopping in front of the statue of Aphrodite to ask for help with a with 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 an with a romantic affair? I mean, um, right? No, that's it, interesting. It's, so, so the yeah. idea is that. Um, posited equations occlude all kinds of metrics of relationality yeah. that are qualitative. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You're really good at summing up things in one sentence. Yeah, but I put it in a way <laughs> that most people wouldn't understand. When, like, <laughs> uh, now I have to translate it into English. Um, wait, what did you call that uh, essay? It's uh, it's actually an essay in the magazine Quanta, uh, but I, I I don't remember the name of the essay. But you can just look up uh, 
Uh, there's been a lot of writing about this. It's on the work of this big mathematician called Jacob Lurie. He's okay. the person who first proposed that we should rethink this equal to sign. Right. So, right, right. Uh, so and and bringing in relation relationality. You know, so. speaking of mathematics and notation, I think it was in the 13th century that Byzantine scholars became aware of what we call Arabic numerals. I see. And now we know that they're mm -hmm. not exactly Arabic, but the origins are Indian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But Maximus <laughs> Planudis, I think, um, and yes. others, they yes. call them Indian numbers. Really? What was, what's, what's the, how did they say it in Greek? Yeah, in Zika, I think. I see. Yes. That's really interesting. Yes. That's and really... do you, mm -hmm. and Go I ahead. think, sorry. And so he has a treatise on these numerals and how to use them. Um, and I think it's possibly, I could be mistaken, but it's possibly the first place where the concept of zero and the number zero sort of appears in a Greek text. Um, and he calls them Indian numbers. And I, I, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I looked at that text, that it's because maybe he because he didn't want to call them Arabic, like because that's... That's problematic because it, it's close to Islam and we don't want the, the mathematical. Very interesting. Right. And it's almost like a case of two nice. wrongs making a right. <laughs> Very interesting. Have you, uh, is there any scholarship on this? Have you written on this? Because I'd love to. Read I haven't written on this. it. Um, no, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you later where to find it. I, I mean, I did a, um, I made a list of Byzantine texts translated from other languages um, and, I and I put that on uh, my academia page and anyone can find it. It's just called a survey oh, of Byzantine great. translations. Great. And I think that he great. was translating uh, a Latin text or, or was, you know, he had a Latin treatise on Arabic numerals and he's putting it into Greek and he calls them Indian. Right, right. That's really great. That's, um, yeah, thank you for, <laughs> for telling me about that. All right, Paroma, it's been a pleasure, and I hope to yeah. talk to you soon uh, once your book is out. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, speaking to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye.